For those of you who are listening online, um, this is a re-recording of a sermon that I preached on the 2nd of June um, at Revelation Church called Why the Law? Uh, the reason being that we had a few technical problems, so the recording on the day didn't work. Um, so I'm re-recording it for the purpose of um, going online. Um, now, if you were there, you'd have realised it was a very visual kind of sermon. So I'm going to try as best as I can to make it accessible, um, particularly bearing in mind that you can't really see anything that's going on. So I'm going to try and adapt it slightly so that it works for online purposes. Um, but for those of you who haven't been following uh, the sermon series or who maybe this is your first time listening to one of the online sermons, we're in a series called um, Jesus is Enough. And it's basically a sermon series on the book of Galatians. Um, and what we're doing is we're just walking through Galatians week by week, seeing what the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter in about 49 AD, wanted to communicate um, to the people he's writing to. And by extension, what he wants to what God wants to communicate to us as a church. Um, and the reason that Galatians was written, really, is that in uh, a few years before Paul wrote this letter, he planted some churches in the area of southern Turkey and he uh, went and proclaimed the gospel to them. He proclaimed that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, had died, had been risen from the dead um, and that he was now ascended on high and that he was Lord over all of the earth. And he's preaching to these people in southern Turkey who are following pagan gods um, and who are even possibly even worshipping the emperor and saying that Caesar is Lord. And Paul goes along and he says, actually, there's a there is a new Lord around and his name's Jesus. And he commands people to repent. And actually, he provides a way for forgiveness to happen and for people to be brought into his family, regardless of whether you are Jewish, which Jesus was, or Gentile, which he wasn't. But all the rest of the world was in those days. Paul said, actually, you can come to know God on the basis of trusting in Jesus. And so that's what Paul proclaimed to the Galatians. Um, and after he did that, he established a, a few churches and then he moved on. That's what Paul did. He, he proclaimed the gospel, begun churches and then moved on. Now, what happened a little while after that is some Jewish believers, in quotes, from Jerusalem um, ended up coming along and saying, oh, this is fantastic, guys. You you have believed in, in our Messiah. You believe that Jesus is Lord. That's brilliant. Now, one thing that Paul didn't tell you, um, maybe just you were a little bit new to the whole thing, but one thing Paul didn't tell you is that actually in order to become part of God's people fully, you need to be circumcised and you need to obey the Jewish Torah um, that God gave to Moses. Um, and you basically need to become Jewish. And they probably would have turned to passages in the Bible like Exodus, um, sorry, um, Genesis 15 and pointed to Abraham and said, look, Abraham was the first person to be part of God's people and he was circumcised so you guys need to be circumcised and the Galatians had taken this on board and they thought oh well fair enough we need to obey the Jewish law we need to become Jewish in order to fully be part of God's people and when Paul hears about this he writes the letter to the Galatians and if you've read that letter you'll realize Paul's really not happy about what's going on he's absolutely outraged um, and he's, he writes a really, really strongly worded letter, probably the most polemic letter we have in the New Testament, in order to say to the Galatians, stop doing this. Stop giving in to this idea that you need to be circumcised and you need to obey the Jewish law in order to be part of God's people. That's just not right. Um, and that's what we've been looking at over the last few weeks. We've been looking at the fact that actually Paul is clear and passionate. And we need to be passionate about the fact that what makes you righteous before God and what makes you part of God's people is faith in the Messiah, Jesus. It's not obeying the Jewish law. It's not whatever it is that might that might be doing it for you, whether that's a particular Christian um, 
culture to, 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 to live in a particular way or to not hang out with particular people or to speak in a particular way or to eat certain things. Paul says none of that is what makes you part of God's people. None of that is what makes you righteous before God. It's faith in the Messiah that does that. Because the reality is justification, which is the idea that we are made righteous before God, is a vertical thing, first and foremost. In other words, it restores relationship between us and God, but it's also a horizontal thing. And so Paul is passionate, not only that we should actually be a people who say the only thing that makes me righteous before God is faith, but that actually would also be a people who say the only thing that marks me out as part of God's people and unites me with others is faith in Christ. And it's not the Jewish law. It's not whatever kind of other thing you would want to add on. And so Paul's adamant about this and he's argued again and again in the first um, two chapters that we looked at that it's faith in Christ and not works of the law that make you part of God's people. And we looked last week, as Steph talked last week about Abraham and about how actually Abraham, even though Abraham was circumcised, it's actually his faith in the promises of God that made him righteous. It's his faith in what God had promised him. And as he believed in God, God declared him to be righteous. And so Paul's saying it's not the law, it's faith that makes you part of God's people. And so obviously, as you read through Galatians um, and you're seeing this idea of faith over against the law, the question obviously comes up, well, what's the point of the law? Why on earth did God even give the law in the first place? It's a good question. You might think, well, if it's by faith, why did God ever give the, the Torah to Moses in about 1500 BC? Why did he give that to Israel as a nation? What's the point of the law? And that's what we're going to look at today. I've called this talk, Why the Law? Um, but kind of the subtitle, if you want, is Don't Eat Porridge for Dinner. And that will be a little bit clearer later on. It might sound like a very weird title. But we're going to try and understand what does Paul do with the law what does he say the purpose of the law is if justification is by faith what's the point of the law and we're going to be in galatians 3 verses 15 to 29 um, so you might want to follow along in your bibles because the words will definitely not come up on the screen because this is all online so um chapter 3 verse 15 to 29 and we're going to read it and we're going to unpack it together and we're going to understand how paul understands the purpose of the law and how we should understand the purpose of the law okay to give a human example brothers even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is a Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might come to those who believe. Now, before the law came, we were held captive under, sorry, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay, my suspicion is that you're probably quite familiar with verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the truth is we rejoice in that verse. And it's the kind of verse that people might have on a mug if they're a Christian. They might have it have it framed on a wall and they think that is amazing. I love the fact that there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. We rejoice in that. We praise God for it. My suspicion is that Many of us don't have on our walls framed or on a coffee mug the verse, now a mediator is not of one, but God is one. You see, the rest of this passage, we all love the climax. We love the climax in verse 28 that says, well, there's no, there is no Jew nor Greek. We're all one. But actually, the rest of the passage is a little bit more difficult to understand. It's a little bit like what a friend of mine calls espresso theology which basically means you've packed all of this dense stuff into a very short passage and you read it and it's just like, it's like espresso. It just wakes you up suddenly. And in this case, you probably look at it and think, what the heck is Paul going on about? So we tend to just gravitate towards verse 28 and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to rejoice in that, but I'm just going to forget about all this weird stuff about angels and intermediaries and all that bizarre stuff. But the problem is if we do that, it's a little bit like taking a football match and saying, well, the most exciting part of a football match is the goals. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to edit the football match and I'm just going to watch the goals. And I'm not going to bother watching the rest because the rest of it's not as exciting. And the problem if we do that is if you're a football fan, you're not going to appreciate just watching the goals. Because you want to understand how the goal was how the goal was set up in the first place. You want to understand who passed to who. How did the, how did the whole thing end up working? Or if you're into classical music... You, you, you might listen to symphonies. You're not going to cut the climax of a symphony out and just listen to that. Because the whole point is the whole thing's building up towards something. And if what we do with verse 28 is we say, it's amazing. The rest of it is confusing. I'm just going to take verse 28. The problem is we're acting like we're taking a football match and just watching the goals. And actually, if you just watch the goals in a football match, you don't appreciate the goal as much. And we won't appreciate the climax as much if we don't understand the build up to it. Because we may not realise that actually this, this comes as a climax of a long discussion on the purpose of the law, which may feel like it's tedious. But actually, as we look through it as, and as we unpack it, when we get to the climax, which is where we're going to end today, when we get to the climax, we appreciate it in all its glory so much more. So what we're going to do is we're going to unpack verse 15 all the way up to verse uh, around about verse 25, where, where, where things suddenly get going. And then we're going to see how the climax works. And we're going to look at how Paul understands the purpose of the law. Um, and now what, what we tend to do as Christians is we tend to think very systematically about the law. We think, OK, well, I'm I am a Christian, therefore I'm not under the law. When I wasn't a Christian, I was under the law. I imagine that's something that you may have heard or you may have heard people say, well, we're not under the law anymore. At which point I feel like asking, well, did you ever sacrifice sheep or did you um, ever stop eating particular things or did you ever observe particular festivals? Because actually, we think very systematically about the law. We think, I wasn't a Christian, I was under the law. I am a Christian, now I'm not under the law. And Paul doesn't think like that. Paul thinks in terms of a story or in terms of history. And so what we're going to do is we're going to imagine this as a timeline. We're going to imagine how Paul understands the law 
by placing things on a timeline. So if there are any of you are history geeks, I'm definitely one of those. You may lo love timelines, placing particular things on a timeline. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to think of this passage and think of it in terms of where do things appear on a timeline? Okay, so we're going to have to work our best to imagine what's, what's going on in terms of a timeline rather than in terms of bullet points systematically. Am I a Christian? Am I under the law? Oh, am I not a Christian? Am I under the law? That, that's not the way Paul thinks about it here. So let's just imagine that timeline. And what we need to do is have a look at verses 15 to 16 to understand what's going on. So I'll just reread those. Paul says to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. OK, so let's imagine our timeline. Now, the idea is we want to imagine the beginning of our timeline for this passage, which is about 2000 BC, which is where God appears to a pagan, pagan worshipper in Ur of Chaldea called Avram, whose name is then changed to Abraham. And God appears to him in about 2000 BC and says, I'm going to bless you and I am going to give you um, many descendants. And through you, through your descendants, all the nations are going to be blessed. OK, so that's in about 2000 BC. And God appears to Abraham, a pagan worshipper, and says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to bless all nations. In other words, through you and your offspring, the curse that has come upon humanity is going to be undone. OK, so we're about 2000 BC. Fast forward about 2000 years to about 6 BC, where Jesus is born. And that's going to be the other end of our timeline, because Paul says now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So what Paul's saying is actually, even though Israel carried the promise that was given to Abraham because they're his natural offspring, actually, the promise finds its real fulfillment when the Messiah of Israel comes along in about 6 BC and embodies that promise and embodies the blessing. OK, so that's that's kind of Paul's timeline. And if that has been how that had been how it had worked so 2000 BC, God gives a promise to Abraham about zero at 6 BC. Jesus comes along and embodies that promise. Then Paul wouldn't would probably not have written this whole passage because we know that what actually happens is the law comes along and things get a little bit more complicated in terms of understanding what's going on. So we've got our two ends to the timeline. 2000 BC, Abraham, 6 BC, Jesus comes along. And what happens in about 1500 BC is that God gives a law. OK, so I want you to, to imagine that you've got Israel. Um, so you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 patriarchs, Israel. They go into Egypt. As you've seen the Prince of Egypt, they come out of the um, out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And they're given a law in about 1500 BC where God comes along and gives you may have heard of the Ten Commandments and says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, etc., etc. And God gives them this law. And the question is, how does the law relate to the promise that was given to Abraham? OK, so what Paul does is he says, well, first of all, I'm going to talk about two wrong ways of understanding the, the law and the promise. We're going to look at two wrong ways. And he says in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So Paul says, I'm going to take a human example, a human covenant between two people. He says, even with one of those, you don't add to it and you don't cancel it once it's been ratified. OK, we may not be too used to human covenants nowadays, but take the example of a book. So um, Tom Avery, who's a writer in, in the church, tends to sit in Costa from time to time and just write away on his on his laptop and writes away the, the books that he makes for for kids. And I've walked past a few times and just seen him in Costa typing away. Now, if Tom 
hasn't printed the book out and the book hasn't been published, he can delete as much as he wants. He can edit as much as he wants. He can add as much as he wants. But once the book's published, once the book's been printed off, if Tom notices a spelling mistake on page 100, he can't do anything about it. And what Paul's saying is actually it's the same with a human covenant and it's the same with God's covenant. Once God's made the promise, you don't add and you don't take away from it. So we looked at two wrong views of the law. The first one is the idea that actually the law cancels the promise. So let's imagine our timeline again. 2000 BC, God gives a promise to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you. And he passes that down through his offspring. And Israel end up coming through the, the Red Sea into the wilderness and the law comes along. And in this first understanding that the idea that the law cancels the promise, what the law does is looks at the promise and says, well, that's a fantastic promise there, but I'm taking over from here. I'm going to stop that promise. I'm going to beat it up and put it on the floor and crumple it. And I'm taking over from now on. It's the law. And Paul says that is a wrong way of understanding it. And we're going to see why in a little bit. So Paul says that's wrong. The law doesn't cancel the promise. The second wrong view that Paul says, actually, is that no one uh, adds to it. So the second, second view is a little bit more nuanced. It's kind of like, well, of course the promise doesn't cancel. And so of course the law doesn't cancel the promise, but maybe it adds to it. So again, let's think of our timeline. Let's imagine 2000 BC, God gives the promise to Abraham and Israel end up carrying that promise all the way through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And along comes the law and says, that's a fantastic promise you've got there. That looks really good. But so well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to add a few things to it and I'm going to change a few things here and there. And I'm, I'm going to combine myself with it and I'm going to add some stipulations and that's going to be even better. And Paul says, no, that is a wrong way of understanding the law as well. So the law doesn't cancel and doesn't replace the promise. But why doesn't it? And Paul gives us three reasons why the law doesn't cancel the promise, why the law doesn't add to the promise and it's important that we understand why this why this is the first thing Paul says is so he says verse 17 this is what I mean which is always good when Paul says that this is what I mean I'm going to explain it now the law which came 430 years afterward doesn't annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void okay so we've just seen that it doesn't cancel it for if the inheritance comes by the law it no longer comes by promise but God gave it to Abraham by a promise so God says actually I made a promise to Abraham and when I make a promise, I intend to fulfill that promise. And the, the inheritance doesn't come by the law because actually I always designed it to work by a promise. They're two different things. OK, it's really important we understand that the inheritance comes by the promise. God had always designed it to come through the promise to Abraham. So the law that comes along actually isn't a way of God saying I've changed my mind because God doesn't change his mind when he makes a promise. He keeps it. So that's the first reason. The second reason is the is in verse 19 to 20. And this is where the weird stuff about intermediaries and the angels come along. Um, so Paul says, why the law? It was added because of transgressions. We'll look at that a bit later until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. What on earth is that talking about? Here's what Paul means in general. It's impossible to know exactly in the details what he means. But the general message is this. When God gave the promise, he appeared to Abraham directly. He appeared to him and said, I am going to bless you. When God gave the law, Paul says, actually, it was added, put in place through angels and by an intermediary, by a mediator, by Moses. And so Paul's saying, actually, look at the promise. The promise 
is like someone coming to your house, like a home visit, knocking on the door, saying, hi, how are you doing? Can I come in for a cup of tea? What, whatever people do when they come to your door. And, God, and, and Paul says, actually, the promise works that way. God gives it directly. Whereas the law is more like receiving a letter. It's indirect. And obviously it's from God. It's, it is godly. It's perfect. But actually there's an indirectness to it. Where What Paul's saying is this. They're two different things. The letter and the home visit are not the same thing. The law and the promise are not the same thing. They're a different way of God working. When God works for salvation, he does it directly. And when God works with the law, there's an indirectness to it, which is a bit different. And so Paul says, actually, they, they're just two different things. And then finally, and this is the most important. Paul says in verse 21, he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Of course not. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Paul says, and this is really important, the law cannot give life. As we'll see in a bit, actually, the law, all the law is able to do is to show you what is right and wrong. And by implication, how you've gone wrong. It cannot give life. So imagine someone lying on the street, cardiac arrest after an accident and the ambulance come along and the paramedics jump out. And they go and find the and they find the guy on the ground and they think, OK, this guy's got cardiac arrest. We need a defibrillator. And one of the paramedics says, OK, I've got it covered, guys. Runs back into the ambulance and comes out with a couple of books and puts on the guy's chest and says, right, everyone, step back. We're going to shock him. And nothing happens. Paul says, actually, that, that the law cannot give life. It's not like a defibrillator. There's no power coming through. It's like putting books on someone's chest. It cannot give life. Whereas God had promised Abraham, I'm going to bless you, which involves life. And so Paul's basically saying the law and the promise are two different things. Therefore, the law doesn't cancel the promise and it doesn't add to it. But the question to worry is, why on earth did God give the law? Why did God give the law to Israel in 1500 BC? What was the point of it? What we're going to do is we're going to read verses 19 to 22 really quickly. And we're just going to pick up on a couple of things that Paul says. And then we'll look at an illustration that Paul gives in, in verse 23 to 24, which really helps to, to unpack it just a little bit more. So Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. OK, so we've looked at the idea of intermediary. We've looked at the idea of the law not giving um, not giving life. But Paul says a couple of things in this passage about what the law actually does. And the first thing we need to we need to realise is that Paul says the law is given until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been given. So imagine our timeline again. We've got Abraham, 2000 BC, got the law comes along, 1500 BC, and Jesus, 6 BC. Paul says the law was given, 1500 BC, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And we saw the promise was made ultimately about Jesus. So actually, when we think about the law, we need to think about this period of time between 1500 to the birth, to, to the, the birth, death and resurrection of Jesus. That's when the law actually acts in the way that Paul describes here. OK, and it's really important we understand that, because otherwise what happens is we get all muddled up in our thinking and we think, actually, before you become a Christian, you're under the law. And now you are not under the law anymore. And Paul doesn't think like that. Paul thinks in terms of this timeline that's going on. OK, so Paul says it's added until 
Jesus. And then Paul says also, he says, verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. And in verse 22, he says the scripture, which is another way of kind of referring to the law, imprisoned everything under sin. In a weird way, what the law does is it takes Israel and it imprisons it because of transgressions under sin. And we'll look at what that means in a little bit. But in other words, what the law does, it, it comes along and says, OK, I am going to show Israel. I'm going to show my people what is right and what is wrong. And I'm going to show them where they fail. And by doing that in a, in a, in a weird way, it's going to imprison them under sin. It's going to keep them under sin. It's going to keep them from going too far astray. OK, a little bit difficult to understand. So we'll look at an illustration that Paul gives in verse 23 to 24, which is really helpful to understand it. So the law is until the coming of Christ and it's given in order to make sin known and in order to imprison God's people under sin. So what does that mean? OK, verse 23, 24, Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. OK, now you may look at those verses and think, where's the illustration? That is not clear at all. Now, the reason for that is actually in verse 24, the word that we have, which is guardian, which is a perfectly fine English translation, doesn't carry the meaning, the, the, the complete meaning it would have in Paul's day. There are certain things that if you say in a particular culture and you then say the same thing in another culture or another time doesn't make sense. OK, so if someone says if someone says the words, I'll be back. Everyone in this country thinks, oh, OK, that's Arnold Schwarzenegger, that's Terminator. And they don't take it necessarily seriously if it's said with the, the right voice. Whereas actually, if you were to say that in a completely different culture that had never seen that film before and you said, I'll be back, then they're more likely to say, oh, OK, all right, see you in a bit. You see, certain, certain things in particular cultures carry meanings that they don't in others. And here the word, used, um, the word guardian is actually the word pedagogue which actually in that culture would have carried a whole meaning with it, which we don't understand. Because a pedagogue in the ancient world, basically, if you were rich, uh, a rich family and you had kids, what you would do is you would pay for a pedagogue um, to take care of your child until he was old enough. It's a little bit like a nanny. So if any of you have ever been nannies, you will um, end up Pick, um, you will end up taking care of some, someone else's children, taking them to different places, making sure they don't get run over by cars. And that's what a pedagogue did. So, for example, let's say that um, little, little Roman Augustus needs to go to his rhetoric lessons. What the, what the pedagogue did is he would take, take Augustus by his hand and take him all the way to his rhetoric lessons, make sure he doesn't get run over by a horse on the way. And he would have his rhetoric lessons and then the pedagogue would pick him up. And if little Augustus ran away, he would catch, catch him up, slap him around the face or whatever they did in those days. They were pretty strict and take him back and say, no, you're staying with me. I'm your pedagogue. I'm responsible for you. I'm keeping you. And Paul says that's what the law was like to Israel. So if we think again in terms of our timeline, we've got 2000 BC. God gives a promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless you and all the nations will be blessed through you. That promise then goes through Isaac, Jacob. Twelve patriarchs all the way into 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 Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness. And then the law comes along. And rather than the law saying, right, I'm going to take that promise and destroy it or I'm going to replace that promise and add, add a few things to it. What the law says is that's a fantastic promise. What I'm going to do is I'm going to act as a nanny, as a pedagogue in order to make sure that you guys, Israel, who are carrying the promise that's meant for Jesus, 
don't go too far off track. And that actually by guarding you, the promise itself is going to end up being guarded. So what happens is from 1500 BC all the way to 6 BC, it's like Israel is a little child. It's like it's like Augustus's rhetoric lessons all over again. It's Israel is being guarded by the law. And if you think about the story of the Old Testament, that's actually what happens. Israel over and over again end up disobeying God. But because God's given them the law, God says, OK, I told you, do not do this particular thing. Don't turn to the gods of the nations and you're turning to the gods of the nations. So in line with the law I'm, I've given you, I'm going to discipline you. And every time God disciplines them, God's people come back on track. And every time they go off track a little bit, God disciplines them by saying the law that I gave to you and said, this is how you're going to live, says this. I'm going to punish you and discipline you for it. And even though Israel kept going astray, that law that was in place made sure that God was keeping his people and that ultimately the promise would come all the way to Jesus. Okay, so that's what the law does. That's how the law functions until Jesus. But now, what side of the what side of Jesus are we on? We're not from the period 1500 BC to 6 BC. We're in the period when Jesus has died, been raised from the dead and is ascended on high. In other words, we live on the other side of that period. And so Paul says this, verse 25, he says, but now that faith has come, in other words, now that the Messiah has come and that faith in the Messiah has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many, uh, and we'll, we'll read the, the, the next bit after, Paul's saying, look at yourselves. You guys aren't Jewish, are you? And the Galatians probably think, well, we're trying to become Jewish, but no, we're not Jewish. And so Paul says, actually, the fact that you guys are part of God's people shows that we're not living in the time of the law. Because the time of the law was given to keep Israel until the Messiah had come. Because you guys are now part of God's people, that means that Christ, as we saw last week, has borne the curse of the law and the blessing that was promised to Abraham has actually gone to the nations now. And Paul's saying, look at you guys. You guys are like a watch. It's like trying to read the time. And I'm looking at you and I'm seeing people who are not Jewish and you've been added to God's people. It looks like the time after the Messiah comes arrived. And what Paul's saying to them, these Gentiles who are trying to come under the law and go under the law of Moses. He's saying, guys, read the time properly. You're acting like you're living in the wrong place. You're acting like it's dinner time, but you're actually in breakfast. Stop eating porridge for dinner. Start living in the right time. If any of you, maybe your parents sometimes when, you, when you're a bit younger, maybe embarrass you in the way they way, way they end up dressing. And you, you look at them and you think, well, you're trying to dress like you're 15, but you're actually 40. Is that, if anyone can relate to that, you, you'll, you'll know you'll just see, see parents kind of walking around thinking, oh, you're trying too hard to look like you're a different age than what you actually are. And Paul's saying, don't live like that. Don't live in the wrong time period. You're actually going into a completely different time period by coming under the law. That's not the time period we're in. So I often babysit around the around the Salis, around Hager and Lena's, and I'll often get a text from them. And um, they'll say, Dan, can you come and babysit? We need to go out. So I'll say, yeah, awesome, because I enjoy going around their place and their kids are really cute. So that's that's always a bonus. Um, and I go around and I babysit. Now, if I've got a text from the Salis, and they said, OK, Dan, we want you to babysit. And I say, yeah, that's great. And I come around their house. And what happens is they they end up talking to me and say, well, here's the way it's going to work tonight, actually. 
the kids are going to go out and we need someone to babysit us. Now, after looking slightly blankly at them and laughing for a little bit, I would probably end up saying to them, what the heck are you doing? I mean, I love hanging out with you guys. That's not a problem. But why do you need someone to babysit for you? And actually, what Paul's saying here is, guys, you're going under a babysitter when in fact... Because Christ has come, you don't, we don't need a babysitter anymore. In fact, you guys as Gentiles never had the babysitter of the Torah, of the Mosaic law. Now, there is a sense in which they were imprisoned under something before they became Christians. And we'll see that in, 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 in part of chapter four that explains that. We'll see that in a, in a couple of weeks time. But Paul says, actually, you guys were never under the Jewish law. Why would you go back under someone else's babysitter? Why would you why would you live in the wrong time period? He's saying Jesus has come. We're on that side. We're on the we're on Christ's side of the law. We're not in the period where the law is the supervisor of God's people. That's really important. We understand that. Otherwise, we get things muddled up. Okay. So now that we've figured that out, the law works as a supervisor of God's people until Jesus has come. And now that Jesus has come. We need to make sure we live in line with the fact that we're living in the time after Jesus. What is it that now defines us? So if during that period, the law was kind of what defined God's people. They were circumcised. They obeyed particular laws. That was the way of defining God's people. What is it that now defines us? And this is where we look at the climax. Verse 27 to 29. I'm going to finish on this. Let's just reread verse 26. In Christ, you are all sons of God. Just think about that. You are a son of God. We mustn't, we mustn't lose a sense of the awe at the fact that we are actually children of God, that we're God's sons, that he calls us his children. For you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul's saying this, guys, we are living the other side of the law being supervised on the timeline. We're living in the time where the Messiah has come and you guys are sons of God. Because you were baptised into Christ Jesus and you've put on Christ. What is it that now defines us as God's people? If it's not the law, because it's no longer just Jewish people who get to be part of God's people. What is it that defines us? And Paul says, as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. It's like you've taken clothes of Christ and you've put them on. If you've been baptised into Christ, you have died to the old self and you have put on Christ. It's like you're wearing a uniform. And therefore, Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, the law does not mark you out as God's people. Christ does. You're wearing the uniform of Christ. It's like you go to a particular you go to a school in London and if they're wearing their uniform correctly, they the kids are from various different backgrounds. There will be male and female kids, there'll be older, younger, there'll be black, white, people from the Middle East, people from, from various parts of Asia, people from different parts of America. Massive diversity. But actually, they're all wearing the same uniform. They belong to that school. And Paul's saying here, actually, the law is not your uniform. Christ is your uniform. If you've been baptised into Christ, you've put on Christ. We're wearing the uniform of Christ. 
And there's no Jew nor Greek. There's no differentiation between people. There's no boundary that's that's built up between people because Paul says the thing that matters is that you've put on Christ. In Paul's day, when Jewish men would pray in the morning, they would get up and they would say, I thank you, God, that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave or a woman. And Paul says in Christ all of those differences have come tumbling down. Why? Because you've put on the uniform of Christ. We're living in the time where the Messiah's come, the blessing has gone to the nations, and we need to make sure we live in such a way that actually we don't set up boundaries between each other, because we're living in the time where Christ marks us out. A few weeks ago, we did a um, an outreach weekend called the Fleet Festival as a church, and I just thought it was fantastic. We just We saw loads of people um just really positively respond and many people's lives touched by by the gospel but i think what really for me the big highlight was actually gathering on the sunday morning and the sunday evening with all with five different churches in the area and i just remember looking around and thinking there's someone there who's old enough to be my grandparents my my grandma my granddad there's someone there who's old enough to be my dad someone there who could be my sister And if I was married, there's some kids here who are young enough to be my children. And I just looked around and thought the diversity here is incredible. I said, but we're all worshipping the same God. We've all put on the uniform of Christ. And I just thought this is what Galatians 3.28 is about. And we need to we want to be a church that actually says we're not aiming just for middle class white British people. We're not aiming just for a church of of students or or we're not aiming for a church of black people. We're not aiming for a church of Asian people. We're aiming for a church where actually everyone says there's no Jew nor Greek. There's no slave nor free. There's no male and female. We're all one in Christ because we've put on the uniform of Christ. And we need to make sure that that's the kind of church that we're building. But the reason we can do that is because we know we're living in the period where actually the law is not a supervisor anymore. Where Christ has come, the faith has come, and actually what marks you as part of God's people is faith in him. And if we make anything other than that a representation of what we are in Christ, then we're preaching a false gospel. It's the fact that we're clothed in Christ that sets us apart. And we need to be those who actually live in light with that. And so actually as we as we seek to praise God and we seek to do mission we need to have that in our minds we need to be those who say actually I want to I want to live in such a way that I embody that gospel and I say I'm not going to I'm not going to um, show any kind of favoritism to any particular kind of person I'm not going to put any walls up between people because we are Christ's there's no difference there's no difference in terms of being God's people there's no difference between Jew or Greek slave or free male or female we're all one and if we're Christ's then we're Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to promise. So I just want to encourage you, would you would you live in such a way that actually you embody that? That you embody that gospel that says that the law has has finished being a supervisor and that now we're in Christ and that nothing separates between us. Let's be those who live in such a way and let's be those who, who praise God and honour him knowing that we're living in that time period. Let's not be those who eat porridge for dinner. Let's not be those who um, go under someone else's babysitter. Let's be those who praise God for, for for being the one who makes us all one. And let's be those who proclaim the gospel of good news for all people, regardless of their backgrounds.